Let me only speak the things that your word says and nothing more. Lord, we thank you just for the wonderful worship music you have given us to just turn our hearts towards you, Lord. Lord, where else will we go? You truly do have the words of life. Help us to believe that this morning and help us to live our lives believing that fact, Lord. I pray that as we interact with our coworkers and our friends and our family, Lord, that we would trust in your words of life to change hearts as only you can do. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Now, you may be asking yourself this morning, why is the author of Hebrews trying to tell us that Jesus is superior to angels? Obviously, he is. We know this. But remember that this was written to a Jewish audience in a time quite close to when Jesus had walked the earth. The Jewish audience he wrote to would have held angels in very high esteem. Just think of all the Old Testament accounts that had angels in them. Perhaps what they were most known for is delivering messages. The word angel actually means messenger in Hebrew. So you could say that we are continuing from my last sermon to examine Jesus as the better messenger, better even than God's angelic messengers. Another point to consider is that Jesus was known as a man who recently walked the earth by many people in this time. Many would not have even considered him a divine being at all. Therefore, it was necessary to declare to the audience of this letter that Jesus was not only superior to the angels, but that he was God who took on flesh. And so what we will see the author do in verses 4 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 1 is lay out various passages taken from the Old Testament that absolutely show Jesus' superiority to the angelic beings. I think you will see that what he says has much significance for you and me today as well. We will conclude our time together by examining verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, which gives us an exhortation based on the author's arguments in chapter 1. So, let's begin by reading verses 4 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. Look at it with me. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. 
But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so what the author has done in this passage is he has given us seven Old Testament passages to communicate the point that he, and more precisely, the point that God, through scriptural inspiration, is making. Jesus is superior to angels, and here are the reasons why. I think that we can organize his points into four main reasons that Jesus is superior. And for those of you who like alliteration, all of those reasons will begin with the letter S. So, let's begin with reason number one, which is the first fill-in on your insert. Jesus is superior because Jesus is the Son of God. Look at it with me again in verse 4 through 5. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Notice that he says in verse 4 that the name Jesus has inherited is more excellent than theirs, the angels. Remember, the, remember that the name Christ is derived from the word Messiah, which means anointed one. So we can say that Jesus inherited the name anointed one, which is superior to angel, or its meaning, messenger. But, perhaps even more importantly, Jesus has inherited the name of Son of God. Jesus is one to whom rule has been given as the Son of God. The first passage in verse 5 is taken from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. What is interesting about these two passages in verse 5 is that they originally referred to Old Testament kings, but the author is interpreting them as also applying to Jesus. Now, this is not the only place that this is done in the New Testament. There are actually many passages taken from the Old Testament which are used to describe the work and person of Jesus Christ, although they had a different subject in their original writings. It is important to remember in these cases that God sees time in a different way than man does. So the idea that a fulfillment of a prediction could take place both in an immediate context as well as in the future should not surprise us. This first passage, as I mentioned, is taken from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and it originally referred to David. Now this verse was also used to refer to Jesus at another point in time during Paul's address at Antioch in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. You don't need to turn there, but I will read it for you. It says, And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, the word begotten that we see here is used to indicate the paternal relationship that God had originally to David, 
but now in an even more significant way that he has to Jesus, his son. The timing of this begetting does not seem to be the focus of the author's mind here. It could be referring to Jesus' incarnation, his baptism, his resurrection, or perhaps it is not meant to refer to any specific point in time, since Jesus is eternally the Son of God. Regardless, the point in quoting this passage is to show that God's relationship to Jesus is as a father to son. It shows that Jesus has a special relationship to the Father that is superior to any angel's relationship to him. This is why the author begins these quotations by asking the rhetorical question, to which of the angels did God ever say? Now, I will disobey the rules of a rhetorical question and answer it for you. The answer is none of them, of course. God has never said these things to any angel. He clearly has a special relationship with Jesus as the Son of God. We see this idea further reinforced by the second quotation in verse 5, which comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. This passage was an oracle originally spoken to David by Nathan the prophet regarding his son Solomon, who would be a significant Old Testament king. And it says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now it's quite clear in the eyes of the author that God meant it to refer to the eventual greater son of David, that is Jesus Christ. So we see here that the first passage from Psalm chapter 2 establishes that God has begotten Jesus as a son. And then the second passage from 2 Samuel chapter 7 shows that he continues to have that special father-son relationship to him throughout all eternity. And so we see here that the first reason that Jesus is superior to the angels is because he is the Son of God. The second reason for your fill-in that Jesus is superior to the angels is because he is served by angels. Look at this idea with me in verses 6 through 7 of Hebrews chapter 1. Starting in verse 6, it says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Notice here that he begins the quotation by referring to Jesus as the firstborn. This statement is filled with meaning when referring to Jesus. It is the Greek word protokos derived from the root, word, root words proto and tokos. And you can see these highlighted on your insert. Proto, meaning first or beginning, and tokos, meaning to give birth. It is especially significant in referring to Jesus because he is the firstborn among many brothers, which comes from Colossians 1.15 and Romans 8.29. Notice that the author also uses the phrase, he says, to introduce these verses. The question is, who is he referring to when he says, he says. I think the clear answer is that he is referring to God. This gives us a clear understanding of the author's view of the inspiration of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. He is not merely quoting formal declarations from Old Testament texts. He is quoting the words that God had previously inspired men to write. And now the author, too, is declaring 
what God intends to say by using these same words again in the context of, his, in the context of Jesus Christ. What an amazing reality to consider that God has provided the scriptural inspiration to speak to us. It's truly, truly amazing. Now, we will consider the next quotations that he uses. The third quotation in verse 6 is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. It's originally taken from the Song of Moses, and in the original text it says, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down, him, bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. This passage was originally used to command all of heaven to worship God the Father. The author of Hebrews, again, uses it in a slightly different way as God commanding the angels to worship his son, Jesus Christ. It further drives home the superiority of Jesus as the one whom angels are to worship. Jesus is so much superior to angels that they are commanded to worship him, as is the rest of creation. It clearly speaks to Jesus' godhood. The next quotation we see the author use in verse 7 is taken from Psalm 104, verse 4. And it says, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. There's a distinct contrast that we see here between the Son and the angels. While the Son is said to be begotten of the Father, the angels are said to be made. You see that? It says he makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. Angels are created beings and therefore can only do what they have been allowed to do in their creation. They were made to carry out the desires of their creator. And they are created as servants to serve, while the son functions as a ruler to rule. Now someone might say, but is not Jesus also described as a servant in passages such as Philippians 2.7, in which it says he took the form of a servant, to which the answer is that Jesus voluntarily took on the role of a servant for a time out of submission to his father. It is not his primary nature. And even in taking on the form of a servant, he never gave up his rightful position as son and ruler. Angels, on the other hand, were created to be servants, as we see in this passage. They are by their very nature servants and messengers of God. It is also significant that the author describes them using forces of nature. Fire and wind are very powerful nat natural forces indeed. They truly demonstrate the power our God possesses. In the same way, angels are powerful spiritual beings created by God. And Jesus, being God, is more powerful and ruler over these servants. And so we see the second reason that Jesus, Jesus is superior to angels is because he is served by angels. The third reason on your insert that Jesus is superior to angels is that he is specifically called God by God the Father. That one was a little hard to come up with, but I, I did fit the S in there, as you see. <laughs> so look at it with me in verses 8 through 12. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. You may notice again that the author introduces these verses with the phrase, He says. Once again, it is made abundantly clear who is doing the talking here. It is not primarily the human author of Hebrews. It is not even the psalmist who penned these passages originally. Ultimately, it is God who inspired these words to be written and used in referring to Jesus in this letter. What we see in the quotations given here is God referring to Jesus as God and describing the divine works and characteristics that he possesses. The first quote comes from Psalm chapter 46, verses 6 through 7. Again, it originally came from a different context than is being used here. It originally described the wedding feast of an earthly Israelite king, but it was pretty quickly interpreted to be messianic in its meaning, describing the Savior of God that was yet to come. The first phrase we see is especially clear in saying that his throne will be forever. It cannot be any mortal king referred to with this statement. All mortal kings eventually die, and the throne is passed on to another who takes his place. It is not so with the eternal Son of God. His throne has no end, and his reign will continue forever and ever. Notice that this text also describes the character of the eternal King Jesus. It describes him as one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Well, I am sure that Israel had some good kings. I am also sure that there were none who perfectly loved the righteousness of God and hated wickedness. That is, until King Jesus, who perfectly kept the law and never sinned. Notice, too, that the text says he loves righteousness. He does not just begrudgingly accept the righteous standard of God, but he loves righteousness because he is God. We also see here the imagery of God anointing Jesus as king. Remember earlier that I mentioned that the word Christ comes from Messiah, which means anointed one. It is reinforced here that Jesus has been anointed as king of kings. The point, beloved, is this. It is showing that Jesus has been named God and king by God himself, a title and honor that was never given to any angel. The author continues to reference Jesus' godly characteristics in the next quotation, which is taken from Psalm chapter 102, verses 25 through 27. It speaks of Jesus' role in creation as the one who laid the foundations of the earth, it actually harkens back to verse 2, which began this section, telling that Jesus was the one through whom God created the world. These verses also highlight the changelessness of Jesus' nature, since he is the same nature as God the Father. The author highlights this by contrasting the changing, 
temporary nature of the world and heavens. Now, such a statement would have been quite mind-boggling in the time that it was written. There was an idea in the Greco-Roman world that the world was indestructible. To say that the world and heavens would be rolled up like a used garment would have shocked the readers of this time. But it is there. And what is so cool is that it perfectly leads to the climax of these verses. But you remain, and your years will have no end. What we see here is that Jesus is shown to be the most stable and unchangeable force in the whole universe. Not only this, but his years will have no end, and he will reign as king forever. It further reinforces the idea that he is God and creator, whereas the angels are servant creatures made for use in the king's service. So the third reason that Jesus is superior to angels is because God the Father has specifically called him God. Now the fourth and final reason that we will look at for Jesus being superior to angels is because he sat down at the right hand of God. Look at this idea, look at this idea with me again in verses 13 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here, we see perhaps the clearest contrast out of them all. Jesus, after his earthly incarnation, was raised up to sit in the place of honor at the right hand of the Father. He is both ruling in the present as well as waiting for the future day when all his enemies will be made a footstool to his feet. The, the idea is that all will be in subjection to Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ as Lord, just as we sang this morning. And once again, the role of angels is established as servants. It says in verse 14 that they are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for those who will inherit salvation. This verse is very interesting in that it establishes what the primary service of the angels is. It is to serve for the sake of those inheriting salvation. In other words, to serve for the sake of the saints whom Christ has called to himself. We are not given specific details on what this ministry of angels looks like, but it is very comforting to me to know that God has specifically ordained these angelic creatures to help us until we inherit our future salvation in heaven. But once again, the point is to show the contrast between the superior and the inferior. Although angels have an important role to play in their service, Jesus is better as the one who rules over all and as the one who has obtained this great inheritance for us. He now sits at the right hand of God because he was the one who despised the shame and endured the cross. He was the one who chose to leave his place on high in order to do the will of the Father. And he is the one who deserves all creatures' worship now and forever. Jesus is better than the angels because he now sits at the right hand of God enthroned as ruler. 
And it is with this idea of Jesus' superiority firmly established by chapter 1 that we will now turn to the exhortation given immediately following these seven Old Testament passages. You can certainly see the author's clear flow of thought in placing this warning right after making the case for Jesus' superiority. It is not just an academic endeavor to write out all of these Old Testament passages. There is a practical application for both the original readers and for us today. Look at it with me in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews. It begins with this word, therefore, which as we know, we must always ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? So let's look at it. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So here is the warning, beloved. Since we have received a much greater message than the law, we must not drift back into trusting in our own works for salvation. We must trust in Christ, in Christ alone, both in our initial justification as well as in our ongoing sanctification. The danger for the audience of this letter, as it still is for us today, is to drift back into trying to please God by trying to keep the law. That is why the author brings up the message declared by angels in verse 2. The message he is referring to is the law. One commentator says, The writer is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He has in his mind two revelations. One was the revelation of the law, which came by the medium of angels. That is to say, the Ten Commandments. Now, any breach of that law was followed by strict and just punishment. The other was the revelation which came through the medium of Jesus Christ, the Son. Because it came in and through the Son, it was infinitely greater than the revelation of God's truth bought by the angels. And therefore, any transgression of it must be followed by a far more terrible punishment. If people cannot ignore the revelation which came through the angels, how much less can they ignore the revelation which came through the Son? So while the Old Testament texts do not specifically mention angels being present at the delivering of the law of Moses, this idea is mentioned in some other New Testament passages. We will quickly look at one of them just to give you context for the, ver the statement made in verse 2. This statement is found in the book of Galatians. And in fact, the passage is a perfect summary of what the author is warning in Hebrews chapter 2. We will turn there and read verses 19 through 29 of chapter 3 to conclude. So turn with me, if you would, to chapter 3 of Galatians, where we will look at verses 19 through 29. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29.
And it says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Pause here for a moment. Notice what he said in verse 19. This law was put in place by angels. Again, we see very similar language to Hebrews 2. Let's continue reading in verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. <clears throat> so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What this passage, as well as Hebrews declares, is that we were never meant to be justified by our keeping of the law. The promise of God has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law was given as a guardian, as we see in Galatians, to show what the righteousness of God was before the coming of Jesus. As Paul says in Galatians, it imprisoned those who heard it. You see, they had no ability to save themselves from their hopeless state of sin through the law because the law could never and can never give life to a dead and sin-sick heart. That same reality is still true today. It is only through Jesus Christ that we are made free from our sin to faithfully obey the righteous standard of a holy God. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that this morning? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone to be your justification before a holy God? Are you serving the Lord out of the joy of salvation that has already been granted to you in Jesus? Or are you still trying to win God's favor by your good works? Hear this. No amount of kindness, no amount of service, no amount of preaching the word, no amount of standing for just causes can ever make you right before a holy God. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And if you have trusted in him, you can joyfully submit to the work that God has called you to do. You can rest in the work that Jesus has done in winning your salvation. This is why he says in the Gospels, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, remind yourself of this truth today and every day. Do not drift back into trusting in works. Jesus is better. And his salvation is the only way to be right with a holy God and to be changed into his righteous image little by little. And if you are here this morning and have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, I implore you to do so. The burden of sin is heavy, too heavy for anyone to bear alone. But Jesus promises that you can cast it upon him. Stop trying to save yourself. It is not possible. Put your faith in Jesus, who died to pay for your sins and rose again to give you new life in him. And so as we conclude, I urge you, beloved, this coming week, do not serve the Lord out of obligation or trying to win his favor. Christ has already won you the Lord's favor, if you are trusting in him. In all that you do, draw upon the power of Christ that is at work in you. Rest in him and his power to show patience when you feel that you have no more to spare. Rest in Christ and his power when temptations are calling you and your flesh is ready to give in. Rest in Christ and his power when it seems impossible to love your coworker, your spouse, your kids, or anyone else around you. Rest in him, for it is only by Jesus' power in us that we can do anything. May we constantly look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There is rest and life in him alone. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you so much for your salvation that you have granted to us. Lord, we know that it is a gift that we in no way earned. And Lord, I just pray that this coming week and in these coming months, Lord, that we would just trust in Jesus Christ alone to be our justification before you. Lord, we know that we can never live up to your righteous standard. We know that it was necessary for Jesus to take on that burden and die on the cross in order to pay for our sins. So, Father, as we attempt to live a life that honors you and glorifies you. I just pray, Lord, that in everything that we do, we would submit ourselves to Christ's power in us. Help us, Lord, to trust in you and you alone. Let us not drift away into trusting in our works, which could never save us, Lord. Thank you so much for this morning, and I just pray that you would bless the rest of our day.